This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. From a macro standpoint, I think our sport industry is really forced to look at the business a little bit differently. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Esports is a good aberration. We're still moving forward. We're part of something much bigger than sport right now. The health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr. Over the next hour, we will explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. Well, and this week, guys, there's really only one story in the business of sports globally, and that is the European Super League. It came... It went uh, earlier in the week. We were talking about its creation, and by the time we got to the end of the week, it was gone. Why was it gone? Let's have Sky Sports commentator Gary Neville give us a flavor for how people reacted to this proposal. I mean, I'm a Manchester United fan and have been for 40 years of my life, but I'm disgusted, absolutely disgusted. I'm disgusted with Manchester United and Liverpool most. I mean, Liverpool, they pretend you know, you'll never walk alone, the people's club, the fans' club. Manchester United, 100 years, born out of workers around here. And they're breaking away into a league without competition that they can't be relegated from. It's an absolute disgrace. And honestly, we have to wrestle back the power in this country from the clubs at the top of this league. And that includes my club. And I've been calling for 12 months as part of another group for an independent regulator to bring checks and balances in place to stop this happening. It's pure greed. They're imposters. The owners of this club, the owners of Liverpool, the owners of Chelsea, the owners of Manchester City, they're nothing to do with football in this country. There are a hundred and odd years of history in this country from fans that have lived and loved these clubs and they need protecting. That is Gary Neville. Uh, that is a moment that went viral after the Sky Sports commentator uh, let it fly in many ways. And his sentiment was shared widely on social media, in fan protest, guys. And later on in the week, we got to the point where the idea was shelved permanently, it seems. John Henry will hear a clip from him later in the show. He personally apologized. He, of course, as the head of Fenway Sports Group, uh, is one of the primary owners, the primary owner of Liverpool Football Club, which you heard Gary Neville uh, talk about there. Uh, we're going to hear much more about this. But in the meantime, you know, Lynchy may be picking up off of the, the Boston Red Sox-Liverpool connection. This was kind of shocking in a lot of ways, how poorly it was rolled out and then how quickly it went away. It almost seemed like an impulsive decision by these 12 owners. Now, we know it wasn't because it's been in the works for some particular time. But the John Henry doesn't really react to fan criticism over here when the Red Sox fans are unsettled. But it's mm. it's startling to us here how quickly he reacted to the, well, the discord among all the fans in, in Liverpool and quickly came out and posted something on Twitter. Very un-John Henry-like, I can tell you this. He hasn't spoken to the Red Sox media in 14 months. Yet, within 24 hours of this decision, he goes on camera and he speaks to the Liverpool fans. Very, 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 very startling. Power to the people, Michael Barr. I mean... It- 
that to me is the real takeaway from all of this, having watched it unfold, having watched it unfold on Twitter, you know, in my inbox, text messages, everything, you know, on, on television. Were you surprised at that sort of the, the power of the fans being a fan yourself? Oh, my goodness, yes. Because we, my mindset is that sports, while yes, it's entertaining, it's a business. And we've always drilled that. It's a business. It's a business. And finally, you got a major wake-up call where the fans said, no, 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 no. We're the fans. We, it's not a business to us. This is something very passionate to us. Wake up, because we're not happy with it. And what's interesting, too, guys, is that in addition to the fans, we also heard from a very small number of players. They were obviously sort of caught betwixt and between. We heard from managers uh, a little bit, Jurgen Klopp being one of them, uh, the manager of Liverpool. We'll hear a little bit from him later on in the show. But you know, one of the interesting things from a political standpoint is in the UK, you had both the prime minister and the opposition leader come out via Twitter. Let me read to you what they said. So this is Boris Johnson, the prime minister of the United Kingdom. I'm reading here. Plans for a European Super League would be very damaging for football, and we support football authorities in taking action, meaning the Premier League, UEFA, and FIFA. They would strike at the heart of the domestic game and will concern fans across the country. The clubs involved must answer to their fans and the wider footballing community before taking any further steps. So that's Boris Johnson. Here on the other side, Keir Starmer, who is the Labor Party leader. So basically, Boris Johnson's political foe. They don't agree on anything. Here's what Starmer had to say. The Super League proposal leaked today cuts across all the things that make football great. It diminishes competition. It pulls up the drawbridge. It is designed for and by a small elite. But worst of all, it ignores the fans. I mean, Lynchy, I am of the strong belief, and we, you know, we talk about this with everybody we, we speak to. I don't think this would have happened a few years ago. I think these guys would have figured out a way to just jam this through. What do you think changed? People had a lot of idle time. Uh, Zoom is around. Social media has exploded. And people are, are unhappy with this pandemic going on. And enough bad things have happened to them over the last 14 months. We're not going to take it anymore, basically. Mm. I think of the old network uh, movie when everyone opened up the window. I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. And this is what happened. Now, as we're taping this show on Thursday morning, and this morning, 20 fans broke into the Manchester United training facility, and they blocked the entrance so the players and staff couldn't get in. Now, it was settled peacefully, but they had signs that said, Glazers out, we decide when you play. And all of this thing is settled I don't think I think there's a lot of unsettlement going on with fans, and I think it will go on for a while. You know, Barr, one of the things that strikes me is that we've learned that there is something different about fandom when it comes to English football. It's something that I think we knew academically, but now emotionally, I think we've seen it up close and personal. I have to think that while many of us have deep connections to our teams, we talk about it on this show a lot. I'm not sure you can quantify in in any meaningful way the the or maybe you can now maybe you you really do have a sense of how impassioned and how forceful these connections are with these teams these English football teams because I don't know like NFL owners NBA owners MLB owners uh, I'll say it like they've done some stupid stuff over the years but I can't 
imagine a situation where even your beloved Tigers, you know, fans are literally storming the gates. I just don't see that happening. I think they underestimated, and maybe because many of these people are American, these owners, the passion with which and the connection that the fans feel to these organizations. They don't just view them as businesses. Listen, I, you know I love my Detroit Tigers, but uh, if the fans are storming uh, Comerica Park, it's because it's free beer. Uh, you're not going to have that reaction for the Tigers or for many other clubs that you have for the uh, the English soccer teams and, and so on. And and, and I, I want to bring this up really quick, too, and it's a great article by Bloomberg's Ruth David and David Hellier. And it's about the Super League, but it's about the women's soccer. And it was just an afterthought. Uh, they were telling the the women that uh, we're going to have a similar female project and it's going to be started as soon as it's practicable. And obviously, many women were like, wait, what the heck is that? You know, we're just going to be dismissed just like this. And people in the industry, the women, they found it disrespectful and unsurprising. And I think that's a part also that needs to be brought up. Uh, because uh, women's soccer, it's, it's a great product, and, and I wish people would take advantage of it. Hey, well, Jason, what, yeah. the only thing that really comes close to this on, on American sports turf is the Chargers moving from San Diego to L.A. Okay, huh. some people burn some jerseys. The, Char- the Raiders move from Oakland to Las Vegas. Okay, some people, you know, burned a Raider jersey in effigy. And that's basically it. It goes away in about, you know, three or four hours. Now, I know... No one's taking any of these teams away from the cities, uh, or we're, we're planning to do this for the Super League. But I think it just shows you the, the the different level of passion from the European football fan to the American football fan. Well, it is a multifaceted story, to say the least. We are going to spend the rest of the show talking to some key voices about this from all of those angles. So happy to have with us now Bloomberg Finance reporter Tom Metcalf, longtime buddy of mine. He is a sporting fan, but knows so much about the business and the finance side of this. And specifically, Tom, JP Morgan's role in all this is just bananas. Before we chat, let's hear what James O'Neill, he's the chairman of the council of Chatham House and a former non-executive director of Manchester United, had to say to our colleague, Fran Lacroix. There was just so many things about it that were just so ridiculous. You know, amongst the okay. millions of questions, you want to get Jamie. You want to get Jamie on here from J.P. Morgan and ask, how on earth did such an experienced CEO that is so good at so many ways by the standards of the industry I came from on connecting with the real world? How on earth did they let themselves? Uh, get this proposal to where it got. It is it is ridiculous and epitomizes so much that has become wrong about modern sport and particular football. J.P. Morgan did end up breaking its silence on the Super League that never was. Co-president Daniel Pinto spoke with Bloomberg Television's front row. We arrange a loan for a client. It's not our place to decide what is the optimal way for football to operate in Europe and the UK. And the thing of it is, Jason, and you got to ask Tom this, had the Super League panned out, J.P. Morgan stood to earn millions of dollars in fees and interest payments. This is a huge part of the story, Tom. Uh, remind us what J.P. Morgan's role was in this proposed Super League. So, 
you know, our understanding is they have pretty close ties with quite a few of the club owners, and in particular, uh, the president of Real Madrid, who was uh, understood to be sort of the driving force of this. And what J.P. Morgan were basically doing was, uh, you know, saying to these 12 clubs is, look, we will lend you $4.8 billion uh, and, you know, at 3% interest, and you can use that as sort of the funds to, A, tide your clubs over at currently, because most of these football clubs are having very um, difficult times in the pandemic without crowds, etc. And then also use the rest of that money to sort of uh, kind of seed this new league. Um, and then, you know, you presume J.P. Morgan's thought were, hey, if this league takes off, we're going to be at the centre of probably one of the most lucrative sporting, sporting franchises out there. But, uh, yeah, to use a technical term, uh, it's pretty bananas that they thought it would actually get off the ground because, I mean, I think it all fell apart within about 48 hours. Tom, this is Michael Barr. I'm going to expand on that. Is this one of those things where business thought this was a great idea and we can make a boatload of money, as you had mentioned, but did not expect the blowback from the fans, especially in England? Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I think it's a miscalculation. I mean, on a purely business level, it makes a lot of sense. You know, if you look at sports in America, uh, you know, the closed system, what that means is it's, you know, a great asset for the owners. Um, you know, they can also kind of keep a, a lid on costs, etc., because there's not this sort of relentless competition in terms of the fear of dropping out of the, you know, the big leagues, etc. Um, but, you know, I, I think, yeah, when you kind of, and I think Jim O'Neill put it quite nicely there. You know, this is, you know, football on the business side is perhaps coming detached from the sporting side of that. And uh, at least in Europe where, you know, football has got very deep local roots and sort of very entrenched traditions, you know, you're going to have to be a brave financier to sort of go up against, you know, pretty much most of society in some of these economies. Um, so I, I don't think they quite calculated the extent of the blowback. Um, but, you know, then again, you know, from J.P. Morgan's perspective, I suppose, you know, they are the banker here. They are just servicing their clients. And, you know, I, I feel, you know, when a glazer comes up to say, you know, perhaps their investment banker, they're, they're probably not going to turn them down when there's millions of dollars of fees, etc. How much money do you think was left on the table uh, each year for these clubs uh, in this Super League that they would have split up? I mean, it definitely runs into the sort of hundreds of millions and then perhaps Perhaps when it comes to the valuations, even the billions. So, you know, I think we've seen steadily the, the team valuations rise. But I, I, I want to say that NFL team valuations are still, you know, ahead of even clubs like Real Madrid um, or Manchester United, despite their global fan base. And that's just because, you know, in the world of soccer or, or football, uh, as we call over here, um, the risks are just um, so intense. So, you know, take Manchester United. It's, it's worth about three billion pounds. But basically, for the last 10, 10 years, it hasn't really been at the top table when it comes to uh, the sporting side of things. And that obviously is starting to chip away um, at its value. And you see a club like Liverpool's done very well in recent years, and suddenly, boom, its value is you know, right up there where, where previously it was languishing. So, you know, difficult to put these numbers in. And that's the other thing about sport. You, you also get owners who don't just read the bottom line. So I thought it was very interesting that both... Chelsea and Manchester City, who both backed by very, very rich owners um, who are perhaps doing it less for the financial side of things, but more for the prestige um, or even the glory. 
Yeah, Tom, you know, that that element of it, and, and you've done some such great reporting over the years about you know, just sort of the wealth in the world and the wealth in the, in the Wall Street world specifically. I mean, that collision of, of these ideologies in, in many ways and, and the complications that come from these very public assets, there is a lot of friction here, you know, in, in terms of how these guys are used to doing business. And, and as you say, you know, it's like, oh, I've got this great idea. I'm going to call my banker and not sort of feather in all of the different elements to that. I have wondered aloud whether if this happened five years ago, these billionaire owners, these oligarch owners, even if the fans had protested, might have said, you know what, we hear you, but we're doing this anyway. feels like we're at a different moment when we think about sort of financiers and and rich folks, to, to be clear. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the way it's being portrayed uh, in the UK is just very much a victory for sort of fan power. And, you know, what you've been seeing is is a steady uh, accretion of of sort of ownership, basically just to, uh, you know, individual billionaire owners. Uh, So for me, I mean, I'm an Arsenal fan, and that's owned by Stan Kroenke. And I, I think there's a sort of a pretty useful comparison you can make between the sports team he owns in the U.S., and, and obviously in the UK. So he's, uh, uh, you know, it's about to call it the St. Louis Rams NFL right. team, but obviously now it's the Los Angeles Rams team. And that is much more common in the US where perhaps the, the teams do move around a bit. But, you know, uh, you know, it basically uh, if that just would not happen or could not happen here. You'd kind of rip the heart out of the Arsenal Football Club if you moved it to, you know, somewhere out of London. Um, and it's interesting. I just think, you know, the sporting world in, in America and the UK are so different uh, that, uh, you know, perhaps that, you know, some of these owners, and it seems to have been driven largely by the American owners, are bringing that sensibility over, and it just doesn't quite translate. And um, I guess they've got a bit of a, a lesson. And then obviously the really interesting question is how many of these folks bought the clubs, you know, perhaps on the assumption that they could kind of make some pretty drastic changes. Right. Now those look further away than ever. So what do you do if you're a Stan Cranky who, you know, either way he's made a lot of money out of Arsenal. He bought it for, uh, let's call it, I think two billion eventually. It's probably worth, you know, more like you know, two and a half, three. But what does he really want to stick around and kind of endure all this? You know, he's getting a lot of uh, sort of hate mail, I'm sure, at this point, and whether they kind of view it as worthwhile or do they try and sell out? But then, of course, the other question is how many buyers out there are there for a football club with, you know, where it's been quite clear that you can't run it as sort of a business? Um, and then who's got the sort of uh, three billion quid you might need to do that. Yeah, well, and much more to come on this story, and and I know one of the things that that you're following is what may happen on the financing side for the uh, for the, a revised, I should say, uh, Champions League. So we'll be uh, on the lookout for that. Tom Metcalf, finance reporter for Bloomberg. Thank you so much. Really good to catch up with you. Thank you. Joining us now, NBC Sports Premier League analyst, former footballer himself. Robbie Musto, he joins us from Connecticut. Robbie, we were joking before we uh, started recording. I mean, what a week it's been. It came and went so quickly. Tell me what the experience was like for you. Well, it was, uh, I mean, talk about social media um, being absolutely like critical and amazing viewing over those few days from Sunday to Wednesday when the rumors first came out. Um, and then you couldn't quite believe that this was, wow, this is happening. Like, there's been talk of this Super League for many, many years. And 
Um, and, you know, we kind of heard it before, but on whenever it was, it was Sunday night, wasn't it, late, that it was announced. Um, wow. Um, so very, very quick. Um, I think when you got the details of it, I was waiting for the bits where, like, this is potentially feasible and this is kind of okay. And there were no bits in any part of the announcement, any part of the reports, um, that this was going to be okay. And it was like, wow. I mean, there was genuine... For me and many people in my position and, and who love the game as much as I do and, uh, and know a little bit about it, there was genuine worry that this could happen. You know, I remember being on the set with Robbie Earl on our show, and I think Robbie said, this, this is serious. Um, with all these clubs signing up for it and big clubs. and um, So, it, listen, we'll get into the details, but it came very quickly. So thankful that it went away very quickly as well after... You know, that was the fun bit, wasn't it, on social media when it was Chelsea. It was Chelsea. Reports are that Chelsea are going to pull out of the Super League. And I'm like, boom, wow, okay. finally one club is going to make a stand. And then quickly after that, um, it, it, it collapsed and fell apart. Well, since you mentioned Chelsea, and, and I was looking at this, according to KPMG Football Benchmark, and this is about – the money that the clubs lost. And I Milan was number one for last season, mm. over like 194.6 million euros. But Chelsea made money, 44.8 million euros. Why did Chelsea make the money and Milan just got clobbered? Well, I think every club is very, very different. And I think when you see these these profit numbers and stuff, it's – you know, sometimes it's on um, on transfers and player transfer fees, and I think I think we've definitely seen that right across the board through the pandemic. The clubs have been massively, massively hit, um, but there's differences. I mean, Chelsea is 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 very unusual. The, the owner there, of course, we know Roman Abramovich, um, puts a ton of money into that football club at all times. It just recently spent a load of money, so the, the profit numbers there kind of surprised me because they've spent a lot of money recently on getting some of the best talent around. Now, in different countries, and this is where maybe where I think this is pushed, it's obviously pushed from, from the American owners of the Premier League sides that I guess are, are trying to maximize revenues and grow their, their clubs. But I think it's more from the Italian clubs that don't have... They don't have the, the financial backing that the Premier League does through the TV deals and through matchday revenues, et cetera, et cetera. And Spanish football, it's, and Florentino Perez, the, the Real Madrid president, is the main guy for the Super League. You know, in, in La Liga, their, their TV distribution is so heavily weighted to the, Bayern, uh, to the Barcelonas and Real Madrid that it makes it an uncompetitive league. So there's a ceiling for that. So I think a combination of the... The, the ceiling that the, some of the bigger clubs feel in Italy and Spain, as well as the American guys thinking, well, yeah, maybe there's something in this, has led to this Super League. Um, and, yeah, go, just going back to Chelsea. And, you know, I think, to be fair, and this is, again, it's kind of a little bit of hearsay, but Chelsea and Man City were the last of the English clubs to get on board. It was like, listen, this train's leaving the station. You've got to jump on as we announce this. Um, so I think they did. And it was it's actually Man City and Chelsea, the first ones um, to jump out of it as well. We saw when we heard the outrage of the fans, but we really yeah. haven't heard anything from any of the players. What is the mm. temp temperament of the players right now? Have you talked to anyone? Or as a former player, yeah. what would your temperament be? Well, I, I would be disgusted with it. 
I think I would be a little bit nervous about what I could say. And, Mike, th- there was some comments, and, you know, studying it as closely, of course, as we do, um, the Monday night game was Leeds-Liverpool, and James Milner, very, very respected, a, 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 a legend, really, of football. He's been at some big clubs. I think he's 35 now. Basically said, I don't like it. You know, and I think he was the first player that I heard that said something because he's experienced enough to be confident enough to be able to say whatever he wants, really, within reason. Um, and also there were statements that came out before this collapse, by the way. Kevin De Bruyne put out a, quite a nice big statement on his social media saying, listen, I was a kid, a boy growing up in Belgium. I had dreams to, to reach the very top. Um, of course, the Super League would have would have absolutely destroyed the dreams of, of kids and and. Uh, players all over all over Europe. So there was a few that came out. Jurgen Klopp in that very same game, the manager of Liverpool, kind of, you know, he, he kind of rambles and rants a little bit when he talks. It is hinted that, that this isn't cool, it, it would be in his words. So there was a few that came out. And I think, obviously, in the game as well, you saw the Leeds United players have this shirt on, basically about the Champions League. And the big headline from the shirt was, earn it. You've got to earn it. You've got to earn your right to play in that competition and, and, and to match up with the Europe's elite. So, yeah, it, it, listen, thankfully, it only lasted a couple of days, but I think the more time would have gone on, the even more universal disdain um, you would have seen. I mean, I, I think, you know, of course the fans had a big part to do with this. Of course they did. But there's only a couple of I mean, it wasn't just the fans. It was the general reaction of everybody connected to the... To the, to the uh, emotional blimmin' juggernaut that football is in, in, particularly in England, and between the the football pundits on TV, obviously a few of the players, the managers, the fans, obviously, but also when you've got Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, making statements like "We're going to throw a, a legislative bomb on this, and we'll do whatever we can to stop this," you've got Prince William, the royal family, coming out and saying it. At that point, I am thinking there's no way, there's no way this is going to be allowed to happen because of cultural importance of the pyramid and of the, you know, progression through through performance and success and jeopardy and risk and consequence with failure. And that's been the, the main thing that, that thankfully has, has come through. I, I want to hear the the bit from, if we can, the the bit from Jurgen Klopp because because you're right, it was it was powerful in a in a Jurgen Kloppian sort of way. Let's check it out. It's always more games, more games. And for UEFA, it's for money. If you tell the, ball, the clubs, it's about money. The FIFA wants a club World Cup whenever that should be, but should happen. So it's about money, nothing else. And all these kind of things. So it happens. It's not only these clubs. And things will change, and some things have to change. And so that leads me to my last question for you, Robbie, which is. Things will change. Things have to change. What do you think happens next? As someone who knows the game so intimately from so many different perspectives, this was trying mm. to address something, both the the action of these owners, but also the reaction of those so mm. many who were against it. Do we see a new Champions League sort of format? Do we see something mm. else change? What do you think happens next? Really interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. And we are seeing a new Champions League format uh, right. start in 2024, like just over the last couple of days. It kind of went, well, that's why this statement came out. It was kind of challenging the new format. Now, the, the, the UEFA are in such a difficult position, such a difficult position. More clubs want a piece of this, this, this competition. 
So they've actually made the competition bigger, which I don't like. Jurgen Klopp, and that's what he's talking about. Too many games, too many games. Now there's now now UEFA have made it even bigger. This competition, the, the players are playing so many games in different competitions. It's difficult. Now, in terms of what should change, the Premier League is brilliant. It's not, it, you know, it's not like other leagues. You know, the, the distribution of TV money is fairly evenly split so you're getting a fairly competitive league we have the big clubs but we don't really know who's going to win each year that um it, so so there's not much wrong with the premier league there's not that much wrong with the champions league if anything i think jürgen klopp would love it if there's just fewer games mm. and maybe the big clubs and i'm not saying the big big clubs should dictate this but they'd probably be happier if there was fewer games and the wealth of that competition was actually you know, more money from fewer games would go to those clubs. That's what they want. It's a balance, isn't it? It's a balance between who should be in this competition. I mean, let's face it, it's called the Champions League. And it's been champions plus, oh, hang on a minute, actually second, third, fourth in your country and third in your country. And so it's gotten diluted. It's even more diluted to, to appease others to get some piece of this pie. But my opinion, reduce it. I'd, you know what I'd do as well? I'd reduce the Premier League. Not popular with some fans, etc. There's 20 teams right now. Bring it down to 18 sides, a little bit less uh, amount of games, more quality, less injuries. And I'd reduce down, now they've gone the other way, sadly, the Champions League as well. So I want to see quality. I want to see all the, the, the best players out there. I don't want to see the rest and rotation that we see in all competitions because there's so many games. So uh, where it will go, I've just told you where it's going. It's going to be more games in European football. That just puts a bigger burden on the English players and the likes of the FA Cup and the League Cup. Historic, wonderful competitions that I've had the pleasure of playing in the final, the Cup Finals at Wembley on three occasions. You know, they're becoming less important because European football, there's more and more of it. So there's going to be more of it. Um, but the Premier League, you know, it's a brilliant product. And thankfully, it's still one club, one vote. So nothing too much is going to change with that league because all the, other, all the teams in that league We'll have an equal say in the direction and, and how this league is run. All right, Robbie, I, I'm going to sneak in one more just because I'm so fascinated yeah. by your insights here. And and that is, you know, this notion of, you know, foreign investors, be they American, be they Russian oligarchs, be they, you know, mm. Middle Eastern sovereign wealth funds and whatnot. How has mm. that changed the game specifically in, in England from your perspective? Well, I think it's helped um, – it's attract the best managers and the best best players. These are these are people for the most part that are putting in extra money. You know, there's uh, I'm not sure. Like for Chelsea, it's certainly the case, and for Man City, Man City were not. They're not old money. Old right. money is Man United, it's Liverpool, and it's Arsenal. Um, so new money has come in. It certainly improved the profile of those clubs, and it's made those. Now, I mean, to be fair to Chelsea, now they they run a pretty a pretty profitable club and well-run club. And they've expanded their reach around the, the world, particularly in America, actually, tremendously well. So the revenues are coming in. But I think that's, that's been the difference. And, and people continue to want to do it. The Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia um, prince wanted to buy Newcastle United. Right. And he actually failed the, the fair and proper test to be an owner in the Premier League. So this league continues to attract 
people that want to get involved and want to invest in clubs. And, and we know the Americans have come, and, and, and it hasn't always been, you know, good stories of the American owners. A lot of them have lost a lot of money and got out of it. Aston Villa, one club, uh, Sunderland Football Club, another one where American owners have come in and it hasn't worked out well. So um, as long as, as you know, it's, it's broadcast everywhere. It's the most entertaining league. It's the most watched league. And, and, and big money people from whatever part of this planet do want to get involved, which, which ultimately is a, is a good thing. Um, but there's got to be a little bit of checks and balances. And I'm sure you guys have heard of the, the financial fair play where clubs yeah. are really meant to spend what they earn, which is very, very questionable on some of these uh, clubs that you've just talked about. But um, that's the attraction. And that, you know, to be fair, the old money of the, the three clubs, <coughs> we are talking about top six. And I'm not saying they're all... They're all mega successful, but the money that's gone into those clubs means that it's a fun league to watch now. And there's always a big six in inverted commas matchup each weekend that, yeah. that fans love to watch. Well, it's been fascinating to watch. And, and you talk about checks and balances. We saw checks and balances in uh, in rare form uh, this week. So, Robbie Musto, yeah. thank you so much. Uh, love watching you uh, on the telly, as they say. Your analysis and your insights are, are, are welcome and uh, and and really really terrific. So thank you so much for the time. Thank you very much. Absolutely, my pleasure. Joining us now, FC Helsinger Chairman of the Board and Co-Owner Jordan Gardner. He has interest in football all over the world and certainly in Europe. Jordan, really nice to have you with us. So uh, let me just start by asking you. You know, you follow this game so closely. You understand ownership. You understand the business structure so well. Walk me through. You know, this was something that was rumored for a while the the news hits that that this is happening what was your initial reaction and your reaction as it sort of evolved or devolved over you know 48 72 hours i wasn't surprised there's definitely been rumors about this type of structure getting launched uh almost every year um so it's not something that kind of came out of the blue um what kind of surprised me the most and kind of my, my initial reaction was how poor the rollout was just from a messaging and a PR standpoint. You know, I, I am a firm believer that the owners could have pushed this system through, this new structure through, had they messaged it correctly, whether you agree with it or not. So that, that just really surprised me. You know, you had some of the biggest names and biggest owners in the world, um, the world of sports, launching this kind of revolutionary new idea, new league. And it really was honestly some kind of Mickey Mouse, uh, you know, uh, PR strategy. So that was that was really surprising to me. It didn't seem like they kind of took into account any feedback from any of the stakeholders in the industry, whether that was other clubs who are their business partners, whether that was the leagues, whether that was, of course, the supporters and their fans. So it just seemed really kind of haphazard. And that was what probably surprised me the most. Can they repackage this? Obviously, like you just said, I mean, this this the rollout was poor. But can they repackage this? Can they sell it a totally different way? Can that happen down the road? I think it's going to be difficult. I think they're the, you know the, the largest clubs in Europe. They've lost a lot of negotiating power. I think because of this failed attempt. I mean, if I'm FIFA, UEFA, if I'm some of the other clubs in the Premier League, for instance, I'm saying, look, what you know, if you guys threaten to leave, go right ahead, right? Look what happened last time. That didn't work out too well for you guys. Um, my sense, if I had to guess, is would say they'll probably come together with the current stakeholders in the current structure, uh, with UEFA and FIFA in the Champions League, Europa League structure to continue pushing uh, more revenue towards themselves and more guaranteed spots in those competitions. So uh, honestly, I think that that's probably what, what the direction everything was going already. 
uh, I don't foresee a viable, quote, breakaway league happening after this failed attempt. Hey, Jordan, it's Mike Lynch up in Boston. Uh, I've been quite close to uh, John Henry's Fenway Sports Group for for some time now. Uh, Obviously, he's the owner of Liverpool. Um, One Boston writer called this uh, John Henry's Bay of Pigs moment and wondered if he he could ever step on the pitch at Anfield again and feel safe. Can he? It's a really good question. Uh, I I, I mean, I think it's an open question if any of these owners can show their faces at these stadiums ever again. I mean, you know, will this pass in terms of, uh, you know, being in the mind of fans and supporters at these clubs? Will eventually the time come where they say, okay, yeah, this happened. We weren't happy about it, but we're going to move forward. I certainly think in the short term, guys like John Henry are going to have a really tough time uh, getting any support whatsoever within that community at Liverpool. Um, I think it was just a massive miscalculation for someone in an ownership group in Liverpool who generally were thought very favorably, I think, you know, relative to other groups in Europe uh, about the way they ran that club. So I think, um, I think they're in a tough spot. Maybe over the long run things will improve, but I think right now uh, my sense is he is – not the most uh, liked, well-liked figure in Liverpool right now, for sure. I, I mean, and, and to your point, Jordan, I mean, John Henry, it feels like, based on what he said publicly this week, and, and he was pretty much alone in sort of putting himself out there in the public in this video, uh, he realizes he did something wrong. Let's listen to that clip. I want to apologize to all the fan supporters of Liverpool Football Club for the disruption I caused over the past 48 hours goes without saying, but should be said, that the project put forward was never going to stand without the support of the fans. No one ever thought differently in England. Over these 48 hours, you were very clear that it would not stand. We heard you. I heard you. You know, Jordan, one of the things that struck me the first time I listened to that, and and strikes me every time I I hear it, and I wonder about it from your perspective as an owner, is the, the, the use of the singular pronoun there. You know, the, the sort of, I am taking responsibility for this. I made a mistake. Uh, how important is that in terms of messaging? And, and, and what does it say to you and, and in terms of what you've learned uh, as an owner? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important because I think, you know, supporters and people in and around these clubs understand that the buck stops with the owner and he's the one that he or she or a group of people are the ones that make the decisions at the end of the day. So, you know, you got to give John a lot of credit for coming out there and, you know, on an individual level, taking responsibility, you know, obviously I think if I was a supporter of Liverpool, I would have said, Hey, why wasn't he coming out there before with some statements about, you know, explaining this decision before it happened, right? Why, why be so reactive? But in the sense that, he took pure responsibility for it, and on a, on a personal level, I think that's actually really important. And I think if you looked at the commentary out there, I thought I think it was generally positive about you know his explanation for what happened, whether you agree with the whole decision or not. I think it was a smart decision on his part. In general, how hard has it been as an owner of a club to make money in these COVID times? Teams have just been thrown against the rocks, a lot of them. I mean... During COVID, it's practically impossible. I think there's like a handful of clubs in Europe that are making some money due to the huge player sales right now. But with COVID, with the losses, uh, you know, all and everything that goes into that with the lack of fans at games, uh, it's impossible, really. So, uh, you know, even even taking COVID to the side, it's a it's a really difficult business. There's no doubt about it. I think a lot of people underestimate. Oh, you can own a club and you can print money and like it's it's very very difficult. You have to do a lot of things right to to find a financial model that makes sense. 
And you see, I think one of the interesting things that came out of this whole Superliga discussion is that these owners of these biggest clubs don't run particularly good businesses, especially some of these clubs like the ones in Spain. They accumulate massive amounts of debt. Uh, operationally, they lose a lot of money. They don't necessarily have the sharpest, smartest, and most progressive people making decisions at the top. And I think if you want to look at a silver lining from my perspective, it's a lot of those kind of ideas and those people, I think, got exposed by this whole process. And hopefully, I would like to think that that means the industry might start to change a little bit. Jordan, is it is it accurate to state that this reversal in 48 hours is tradition, triumph over greed? Uh, yeah, I, w- I would think so. Yeah. I mean, uh, the fact that it happened so quickly and so the, the, the backlash was so aggressive. Uh, I think there were a lot of factors in terms of why it happened so quickly and and the motivations. But um, again, I think the problem you had in the New York Times actually just reported this this morning. It's like you just had a an absence of leadership or voice from this owners group and this group that was breaking away explaining their decision. I think if they'd come out and said, "Hey, look, you might not like the decision we're going to make to break away, but this is these are the ten different reasons why we're doing it, and we're gonna we're gonna come out there and explain ourselves." You know, I think there still would have been a lot of pushback, but I think it would have been a little bit of a different narrative than what happened. So, uh, Jordan, you know, these sorts of moments are are inflection points, it it feels like, in in sporting events. And and obviously this is the, you know, this better than we do. It's the most popular game in the world. Even as tough a business as it is, as you alluded to, at at all levels, um, it is a growing one in in many ways. So how does this change the trajectory of the game as a business, in in your estimation? I think what's interesting is I think it's going to empower the fans and supporters to understand that their voice is probably a lot more powerful than people think. I think you have a lot of ownership groups and investors who really just kind of ignore that. Not to say that, uh, you know, when you're owning a football club or any sports organization, you should should sit there and listen to the fans and what they say and make decisions off of that. I'm personally not a supporter of fan ownership and that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, these are your customers. These are people, especially in European football, that have an incredible emotional attachment to your product. And if they don't like something you're you're doing, they're going to protest your stadium. They're going to make it difficult for you to do business and make money. So I think that... That's something that's really changed to a certain extent, and I think we'll see moving forward what effect that has on the way these clubs run their businesses. If there is any positive out of this story, here in in the United States, this story, people at first didn't realize how important this story was. Will this help bring interest to soccer in the U.S.? a good question. I mean, I think the story, uh, you know, I had people, I had my parents were, who were following this, people who don't even follow the sport were sending me text messages about this. So I do think it opened people's eyes to not just an interest in European football, but like the differences between North American sports and Europeans, you know, European soccer and uh, like kind of the the romanticism of European soccer, how it, you know, it's, it's all entirely merit-based and promotion relegation, all these really interesting things that we don't have in North America. So I do think there's the possibility that new fans will be attracted to the sport that wouldn't otherwise be the case. I think it all, though, depends on how the sport you know, reacts to this, uh, how it looks like moving forward. I mean, the, the sport is still incredibly popular in the United States, but can there be continued traction because of that? I, I don't know. Yeah, we'll see how this all plays out. Jordan, how do these owners regain the trust of their fans, and how do they do it in a hurry? 
Well, I mean, I think the first step was coming out publicly uh, with a, a name to the face and apologizing and explaining themselves. And I think some clubs have done that well. Others haven't. I mean, you've seen kind of half apologies from some clubs or no apologies at all from some clubs. You know, I'm a big proponent in sports, but in European soccer in particular, that you can't be an absentee owner and expect that success. You need to be present. And so I think, you know, my sense is if these owners want to regain the trust, is they're going to have to find a way to be present at their clubs and or have people in their ownership groups present at their clubs to explain both, to continue to explain both why they made the decisions, why it was a mistake, and where their particular club goes moving forward. You know, you're not going to, not, you know, hiding behind, I think, PR statements or hiding kind of in the corner is not going to regain the trust of people over in Europe. So, you know, honestly, I also just think it's going to take time as well. This is so raw, and I think the emotion is so raw with so many supporters. I think one thing is Americans we sometimes overlook is just this raw, passionate, emotional, you know, attachment these people have to their clubs in European football. It's just, you know, as much as I grew up as a New York Jets fan, I love the New York Jets, sadly. But, um, you know, I have an attachment to that American uh, football club, but it's just it's so different than had I grown up in Liverpool and been a Liverpool supporter my whole life. It's really hard to explain that for people who haven't been over in Europe. It's it's a lifestyle. It's part of who you are as a person. And I think that's it's difficult to kind of come back from the edge with what some of these owners did to regain that trust. It's just going to take a lot of time. So, Jordan, before we let you go, just sort of looking ahead in, in the short term, setting aside Super League, a recovery, we, we think across the globe uh, in terms of this pandemic, you know, life getting back to some semblance of normal. What does that look like for you and your portfolio of teams? And, and what does 2021 uh, hold in, in that regard? Yeah, I mean, I still think there's immense opportunities in European soccer. You know, I've written about it in various platforms, I think. You know, we've seen by the European Super League discussions that these businesses are so poorly run. There's so much opportunity. Um, you know, I think myself and some of my business partners, we look at this landscape in Europe and, you know, obviously, you know, certain assets are probably unattainable, you know, in terms of buying Manchester United. But there's really interesting opportunities across European football that we continue to look at, whether it's multi-club portfolios, whether that's just finding distressed assets. Um, as we start to get out of COVID and Europe, sadly is lagging a little bit in terms of their recovery and vaccination efforts. But as that progresses, I think we're going to see, you know, M&A transactions pick up. I think people are going to start to look at that landscape, continue to look at that landscape and say, this is an interesting opportunity from an investment standpoint. And that's kind of the space I'm in. All right. Well, Jordan Gardner, thank you so much. Really good to catch up with you. Um, you're a voice I listen to and read about a lot. So it was nice to uh, nice to catch up with you, at, at least virtually, and, and get your thoughts on this very, very important week. FC Helsinger, chairman of the board and co-owner, Jordan Gardner. Thanks a lot. Cool. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. So, guys, three really cool voices, I have to say, on, on this yeah. topic. I mean, what a week. Watching this all, you know, explode and then implode, I guess, is, is the is the way to put it. You know, great perspectives. I, I do feel like, you know, if I'm sitting in the ownership boxes or offices or, you know, I guess home offices still for most of us, uh, of these big teams, you know – I'm eating crow for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and and John Henry is no exception there. I mean, he has publicly apologized, Lynchy, but this is going to be a hard one to to shrug off anytime soon. Yeah, and I loved what Jordan Gardner had to say about that. He thought the rollout was really poor. 
yeah. and that uh, some of the owners, and I know he was talking to guys like uh, like Joel Glazer and John Henry, that these owners have a lot of experience with, with clubs. They could have uh, really pushed this thing through if they presented it better, and he called it a Mickey Mouse PR strategy, which I thought was kind of harsh, but candid and probably accurate. Yeah. So, Barb, what, what do you make of all this? You know, having heard these these perspectives, you know, does it change your view of, of football? Does it change your view of, of the business side of it? Yes. And, and, and I think it was best said that a lot of business owners got exposed in this. And they didn't think this through. Now, again, yes, on a business standpoint of making money, yeah, it, it made sense. But there were a lot of factors they didn't think about. Uh, especially the fan reaction. Nobody thought about that. And then, boom, and then it exploded. Yeah, they heard it loud and clear. And, uh, you know, a 180, like, I don't know if we've ever seen or certainly seen. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online, wherever you get your podcasts. Those drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I'm Jason Kelly. You can find me on Twitter at Jason Kelly News. And I'm Mike Lynch. You can find me at Lynchy WCBB. And I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports, Bloomberg Radio, around the world.